Ed up there leading us and he just reminded me that it was just a year ago that he just came here as a visitor and we welcomed him and we welcome all the visitors who come to visit and especially of course all the way from the Philippines, uh, Christine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this morning uh, Todd's been away on holidays, I don't know why he couldn't have knocked together a sermon in a few hours. But anyway, it's great to be part of a team and to just uh, step in. And I, this morning I'm doing um, a start of a series, which I never know when this series will, will, will end because I don't know when, when I'll be on next. But um, I want to talk about uh, God's great gifts. And um, it's, it's good to think about what God gives us. Uh, and there are some great gifts he gives us. I mean, we can all think about the gifts of the Spirit, as the, as the Scriptures tell us. But um, these gifts, uh, yes, and there's a gift of faith and hope and love, but these gifts help us to understand why living the Christian life is far better than not living the Christian life. These gifts help us understand what, it, what the difference is between being a Christian and not being a Christian. And that's why I wanted to focus on them. I've been thinking about them for quite some time and... Um, I'll share with you what I think uh, is really important um, and I'm anchoring that in, a, uh, in the sermon of Peter uh, on the day of Pentecost. And if you are searching for these <coughs> particular three gifts, you might not find them all put together in one place, but I think this is one place where we'll sort of get a sense that, yeah, that, that makes sense, they are there. And so I'm going to read um, from... Acts chapter 2, and uh, while it's, it's on there, I'm starting at verse 14. I'm going to start a little bit before that, um, <clears throat> just to sort of give that bit of a context there that everyone was speaking in a, a different language, praising God. So um, I'm reading from verse 7 through to verse 41 at the end of Peter's sermon. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arab, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour and of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see to corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there added that day about 3,000 souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, speak to us through your word. Now speak to to each one of us in our hearts that we may be indeed, as it were, cut to the heart, that we may be challenged to understand uh, your great gifts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I've just got to um, get uh, the technology working here, as Todd would say. Okay, so forgiveness is uh, what we're going to talk about today and we've got to ask why forgiveness through the gospel isn't really understood that well, even, even those of the Christian faith. And perhaps we might think about that in terms of the culture around us, the, the society that uh, 
often people uh, would think that forgiveness is about how much strength you can have to accept the other person who has wronged you. Uh, not based on anything that uh, outside of ourselves, but it's more on, well, we just hope that the day will get better when we've been hurt. And the other person who wronged you will show you that they're really sorry. They won't do it again. And I was just reading that the psychologists uh, will say that, well, there's a strong tendency uh, for not to believe the other person when they may say, look, I'm sorry. Um, or when they tell you that you're forgiven. And this is really something that we can compare with what the gospel offers us, the forgiveness that comes through knowing God's forgiveness. Uh, compared to the world's ways, um, it, is, it is far wider and far deeper. The world's ways are narrow and shallow. And we need to understand the gospel to understand this. Forgiveness offered through the gospel shows that the gospel is not only inclusive, as many people think it's exclusive, but it goes much wider than often we think and much deeper than people really know. And there are two key components that help us understand this. This is what we want to look at in Acts, that Jesus is our representative. He represents us in particular ways um, to understand that we are forgiven. And Jesus also is our sacrifice, the right and complete sacrifice that we need to give us that uh, cleansing power that comes through him to get rid of those feelings of guilt and condemnation. All right, first thing. Jesus is our representative. How does that work? A lot of people today will deal with their problems, as I said before, in, in an individual basis. And perhaps you might say, well, rightly so. If someone does wrong to me, I need to go and talk with them. I need to help them see that what they've done is really wrong, uh, at least in my eyes. And, uh, and then I was hurt and can... Can the hurt person um, forgive the person who hurt them? Uh, maybe, if it's just up to the individual. But it seems to that we, we need to process that hurt um, and, and help the others see that it, it, it did us wrong. But this is really the problem, what I see in terms of people understanding what is right and what is wrong, we hope that they live by the same rules. They have the same basis of what is right and what is wrong. And that's why it's so narrow, because it is on an individual. That's the way our society thinks. Uh, we want to uphold, people will say this, we want to uphold our freedom and choose to decide the law for ourselves. The idea that we're all free uh, to choose, so long as it doesn't hurt someone else. But it catches us out, doesn't it? It will catch people out because each person has their idea of what is right and what is wrong. And we don't see the broad problem that the theologians call the fall. And in Acts 2.23, Peter mentions this. 
that God purposed Jesus to come into the world and to die to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this plan has been hinted at, uh, put forward all through the ages, over centuries before, that God would send his anointed, his Messiah, the Christ, to save people who desire to be saved. And, and then at the end of his sermon, in verse 40, Peter says, or uh, <clears throat> Luke says, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this corrupt or crooked or evil generation. And that's the generation the Bible tells us that has sprung from the first man, Adam, created in the image of God but corrupted by the power and the presence of sin. And people often reject the Bible because they don't see the overall plan of God, uh, that he is both a just judge and a merciful God. And therefore, they don't see how wide the scope of, of, of God's love is and God's uh, call is to everyone. And we have to say to those who cannot accept that they can be forgiven, they cannot see that while they're... they're uh, living their lives and perhaps they say, oh, I'm living a pretty good life. I haven't failed in the ways that those other people have failed. That they are also in need of forgiveness. We need to say something like this, please, please, can't you see the problem? It stares us in the face. It's everywhere around us. What the problem is and how broad it is for everyone, how God has gifted the way for everyone to deal with this need of forgiveness? Because it goes back to the Garden in Eden. It goes back to the underlying problems that everyone has. The greatest problem that we have is breaking the law of God, our sin. And everyone has this bent, this capacity to do wrong. Uh, The wrongs of others against us, their own wrongs, are all sin against God. Um, We all have sinned, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, and fallen short of God's standard. And therefore it brings a sense of guilt and condemnation and alienation from God. And it goes back to this, the first man, our representative, Adam. Adam was given this simple prohibition. He wasn't to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, God created him in his image. His moral image created him morally perfect, completely sinless, no need for moral restrictions. But God purposed to test the obedience of this first man. It involved no hardship, no inconvenience. He just had to obey him. And, of course, there was a voice, there was uh, evil that came in there and tested Adam as to, and questioned God's goodness and God's truthfulness. And the woman, Eve, 
capitulated and Adam did too as he was looking on and they lost that moral image, the Bible tells us. They were no longer perfectly holy without sin and they lost that close connection with God and that loving relationship and that's the problem that everyone has that people reject God they reject the truth about God they reject the truth about themselves and the world they live in the Bible tells us in Romans 1 they suppress the truth and so they begin to sin immediately what's going on God asked them oh blame her (laughs) the woman you put here with me and blame the serpent and blame others for our own moral failures we all seek to justify our actions in some way even if we know we're wrong we will justify ourselves in some way and the fall of Adam and the loss of God's moral image resulted not only in the guilt but the moral depravity the Bible points out the corruption and Adam's will became biased towards that and the consequences of our federal head Adam the, 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 the representative of all men the entire human race brought guilt and depravity over all his descendants except of course Jesus everyone is born with this sinful nature And David spoke of this fact in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my time my mother conceived me. And so the consequences of this is that we want to protect ourselves from people hurting us and robbing us. And we see it all around us, don't we? Why do they put locks on houses? Why do they put locks in cars and all these things? You know, my wife tells me, if you lock the car... Maybe I haven't. Have you locked the house? Locked the door? Why? Because the bent of people these days is to go and rob you and steal from you. Credit cards have codes. Money has elaborate sort of codes and all sorts of things built in so that people can't forge it. People steal and rob homes and cars and possessions and even their spouses and their children and they'll rob even your identity if you're not careful and the effects of that bring about of course we see it in our society the mental health issues we've got this mental health epidemic in Australia as much as in the western world and marriage breakdowns and law and order issues and people keeping trust in other we can't trust the government can we or the judges or the police Look at the Royal Commissions, institutions and banks and irrigation schemes and whatever. Why do we need to change our PIN numbers? Goodness me. Why do we have PIN numbers? Sometimes, you know, I come home and I'm even locked out of our own house. Why? Because my wife's busy in the bathroom and she, doesn't want, she wants to be protected from the strangers, the unwanted intruders like me. Obvious. It's obvious, isn't it, to everyone. Sin reigns everywhere in people's lives, in society and in the hearts of people. Through Adam, we have this sinful nature. Wake up. And through Jesus, we can have a sinless nature. 
So what the Bible again tells us that Jesus came representing us as the second Adam. As Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. He was the man attested by God. Peter tells us on the day of Pentecost, showing through this mighty acts and these signs. And while he died, he was raised to life and doesn't see corruption. See, the second representative of humanity, we can be, through him, we can be free of guilt. Why? Because he lived a life without sin, without that guilt and condemnation that Adam carried with him. This is talking about the breadth of our problem, that sin reigns everywhere. And Paul talks about this particularly in Romans 5. For as through one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners, but through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We must have this hope, and our hope is in Jesus, who can free us from the sinful nature, who can give us this forgiveness, having Jesus as a representative. Okay, that's great, isn't it? But some again will say, well, that doesn't really get to the heart of forgiveness. I, I struggle to forgive this person. And of course, this hope is for those who believe in Jesus. You need to believe in who he is, that he is our representative. But some may, again, well, that's your opinion. Some may say this. They object. Oh, I've been hurt and it goes deep down. And I don't know whether Jesus can really help me with that. Of course, this is where Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost really hit home to those who were listening. They were cut to the heart. What's the heart about? Well, in the mind of the uh, Jew, the Israelite, the heart is the seat of our emotions. The heart is the centre of our will and our intellect. The heart is really the centre of the person. And they were cut to the heart. And this Jesus, a person who they perhaps had witnessed and seen and done these miracles and, and saw that perhaps this looked like the Messiah, he was crucified, but God raised him up. You crucified him, Peter says. You're the guilty ones. Sin is present even in your hearts. But God demonstrated that he, he was working out his plan, even though you did that God is working out his plan. How does this gift of forgiveness really deal with the penalty and the power of sin? Well, this comes to our second point now. Jesus is the right and complete sacrifice. The depth of forgiveness comes in understanding how he does that. In the obedience of Jesus, the representative of men. What does it mean? Well, they are devastated, and, and, and this is really the starting point. We need to be devastated about our sins. We need to be recognising that our sins do really, are, are really an offence against God. Um, if, you, if you can imagine that the Israelite had this great hope for centuries and centuries, God would send his Messiah, and then to be told that you've killed him. This is the Messiah that you were hoping for down through the ages. 
you know, there was 400 years of silence. The prophets kept speaking about, well, you know, God will send his Messiah. And we can read it in Daniel. We can read it in a number of the other prophets. But here they were. God had sent his Messiah and now you've killed him. You know, you can understand why they were cut to the heart. And it humbled them to allow them to receive forgiveness. Of course, to understand this, we need to understand what the Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews talks about, is that Jesus is really like a high priest. He's that sort of representative who offers a sacrifice before God to cleanse us from our sin and to bring forgiveness to us. Uh, There was the earthly priest, but there was also the high priest of the order of Aaron. I was reading that apparently between when Aaron became the high priest, as as it was sort of laid out in Leviticus and in in Exodus, that there were about 83 high priests up to the time that Jerusalem was uh, devastated in AD 70. So the high priest had this role of once a year, going into the what was called the Holy of Holies. That is, the temple had uh, these divisions and this place in the temple was the, was the most sacred, the most holy place. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where the, the tablets, the law of God was. And the high priest could, him alone, could only enter in there once a year for the purpose of... <coughs> uh, giving God um, the sacrifice and atoning for the sins, the, the uh, sins that the Israelites had done, even the uh, sins that they hadn't recognised, even the sins, the unintentional sins and the sins of all the people. The high priest would go in there this once a year, usually around the Feast of Tabernacles, it was around about October in, in our calendar year, and... Uh, He was appointed and specially cleansed for that particular role, going behind the curtain and with his special ornaments off just in linen, he would sprinkle the blood of a slain goat onto the Ark of the Covenant, onto the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrificed goat for the sins of the people. And the blood is the evidence that the sins are paid for. The sprinkling of blood meant the complete death and the satisfaction of justice for the wrongs that even that we don't acknowledge we've committed, even that the unintentional sins. And of course, why was this necessary? Because God is a holy God. We've just been singing about holy, holy, holy. What, what's that about? Well, God's holiness means that God hates sin. We cannot stand in the presence of God if we have sin at all, one little bit of it. And the punishment for sin as going back to the garden, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you do that will lead to your death. Death which is a separation from God. Death which is a separation of spirit and body. Death which means just the penalty from that which is holy and good. You know, if you go to jail for a crime, 
You only exhaust the punishment when your time is fully served. But it's, it's more than that. It's not like going to the naughty corner. <laughs> the penalty for sin is death. Spiritual death. Physical death in every sense. And the New Testament, it's stated again and again that, that the New Testament authors use a special word. Perhaps we're not familiar with this word or we don't use it normally in our language, but it's propitiation. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Propitiation. We'll find it in Romans 3 and Hebrews 2 and in 1 John 2 and 4. And he is the one who is the true and complete sacrifice that completely satisfies God, just and right requirements. Jesus is the complete and perfect sacrifice. The blood of goats and bulls, the writer of Hebrews says, won't quite do it. That's why they needed to keep coming back and doing it again and again. But Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice, the one who is without sin and offers himself. He not only is like the high priest, he is the sacrifice. Because as God says, the soul that sins will die. And Hebrews states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we understand this more and more as we think about what Jesus did there in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was he doing? He was praying to God, Lord, if this cup would pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. What was the cup about? It wasn't the cup of blessing. It was the cup of wrath. It was the cup of God's anger that is poured out on those who break his laws. And we can read about that through the Old Testament. But Jesus said this, he drank the cup, so to speak, down to the dregs, the contents, so that we could be free of the penalty. That's why those people in, on the day of Pentecost were cut to the heart. They crucified God's Messiah, God's anointed representative, and they were guilty, condemned. And how could they escape God's wrath? How could they escape God's anger for their sinful actions. What can we possibly do now? What shall we do, brothers? We're absolutely devastated. And even if they understood what Jesus did for them, how could they get cleansed from this stain of sin? You know, it's like, it's like the flu. You know, and the flu's been going around. And we only have to have a person that sneezes and everyone catches it and then we can't get rid of it. And even if we can overcome the infection, there's that lingering cough, isn't there, that keeps going on and on and on. And that's like a lot of people today. They don't want to remember those sins, but they cannot help remembering them, that cough that lingers on. And this is what we need to remember, that God objectively dealt with our sins. Um, of course, we, we, we still might have some feelings. How can we forgive that person who did such harm to me? It comes back to haunt me again and again. I get so upset and paralysed by it. Well, they can't, I can't accept myself as right before God. How can God even 
accept me. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can understand what Jesus did. He releases me from prison, but you know, I can't seem to walk through the door, the prison door and get out. Well, let's go back to the day of atonement when that high priest offers that slain goat. You know, there was not one goat, but there were two goats. This is the two goat story and it's there in Leviticus. The second goat stayed alive. And when the high priest finished making atonement with a sprinkling of blood and the first goat, he came out and he takes the live goat and places his hands on the live goat's head. And he is offering the sins of all the people onto this goat, a symbolic way of putting all the evil that's been committed intentionally, unintentionally on that, on that animal. And everyone in Israel, in the Old Testament, were to be watching on. They were to be looking and they were to be humble about it. And they were to be recognising what it was about. It was to be denying themselves, it says there in Leviticus, and focused on that act. And then that goat is sent away into the wilderness to die in the wilderness they were to see, in a sense, that God was dealing with their sins also in this way. That yes, the penalty had been paid, God's wrath, this propitiation, which means that God's wrath was completely dealt with. Um, Now God was also taking away their sin. And this is another, there's another word there in, in the Bible that the theologians use, expiation. Sometimes they get mixed up, those two words. But you know, again and again in the scriptures, we have this sense that God takes away our sin. John the Baptist said, as he saw Jesus coming, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. In Hebrews, the words of God's promise from the Psalms are repeated. Their sins I will remember no more. Isaiah points this out. He blots out our sins and will remember them no more. In other words, there's no more record. If they've got some record of you in the police department, it's taken away, done away with. And if you go in there, they said, we've got no record of your wrongs. You're completely right. That's what God does through Jesus. He blots out our sins. Just as it's written in there, it's blotted out by Jesus. Psalm 103 is another analogy. As far as the east is from the west, if you can get that in your head, so far does he remove our sins from us. It's an infinite distance. And Colossians, a classic, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code through propitiation, through drinking up God's judgment on himself with its regulations. That was against us and it stood opposed us. And he took it away. Notice that. Nailing it to the cross. You see, part one of God's sacrifice was the death of, in, in symbolised with that first goat, averting 
drinking up all the wrath of God through that innocent victim. And part two was the second goat, the sending away the effect of this propitiation, complete removal of our sins from the presence of a holy God and his people. Both goats represent Christ. Christ is our scapegoat, bearing the guilt of our sins, bearing away our sins. And so this is the depth of God's atoning sacrifice to give us this forgiveness of sins that Peter talks about on the day of Pentecost. If you understand both, Jesus is our representative and our sacrifice to make a person right, free of guilt and condemnation, you see something of the heart of God, his love for everyone. The Apostle John wrote, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. Peter said the promise is for you and to all who are far off, even for your children, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The promise of your forgiveness, the promise of God's presence and the knowledge of God's continuing love. Christianity offers far more than the world ever offers. Can you see it? He died a death undeserving, a perfect sacrifice. He takes away our sins. He is our representative. He is one for, for victory over the power of sin, the presence of sin and the penalty. And if we had time, we could go on and talk about how he's a redeemer, how, he, how he's a friend to us. But I want to leave you with this one thought for sometimes we get tripped up, not by the fact that he's done all that, but by the fact that we have, still have feelings of guilt. The gospel is about dealing with a whole person. And it calls us to trust in what God has done, written in history and clearly there for us to see so that we can have real forgiveness. We have real feelings of guilt. We have, we have guilt, really guilt, but we have real forgiveness through Christ. But it requires, of course, real repentance and real faith. But if we do have feelings of guilt, it should drive us back to the cross. That we need to keep that picture and that all, all those things before us. When the devil or someone else speaks to us saying, oh, you, 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 you're, you're unworthy, you're guilty, then straight back we should be saying, yes, I, I, I'm unworthy. I agree. But Jesus is worthy and he paid for my penalty. Or when the person who offended you is with you and you say to yourself, how can I love this person? How can I forgive them for what they've done to me? Well, you can tell yourself when Jesus said, he is forgiven little, loves little. But he who has lots of sin and loves much is forgiven much. What we need to do is stay in the light, the light of the gospel. Occasionally I'm running around Lake Victoria here early in the morning and so the street lights are on. And in one place I run into 
and they're going to put streetlights there. But it is complete darkness. The path goes that way, so I'm on the path. It's like running into Fangorn forests. There's, there's, there's running into uh, darkness. But, you know, I can say, I trust him who is greater than the darkness. And this path does eventually lead on to the light, going through the valley of the shadow. It's no problem. It's no problem. And, you know, the man-laid streetlights are great because I can see my way, I don't trip. Uh, But at times, you know, there's a presence with me, a a lurking fellow is pacing me and following me. And he just seems to come from nowhere. I slow down and that presence slows down. I speed up and speeds up. And sometimes there's two of them. And they're in front or they're beside or sometimes behind. What is it? Could it be troubling me? These are just shadows. They're shadows from the streetlights. And I think they're a bit like our guilty feelings. You can have more than one. But they have no substance, you see, because the truth remains. If God forgives you, if repentance and faith is evident, you're forgiven. You're truly forgiven. And whatever the problem with the others... The objective truth is God forgives you. You may not be forgiven by your spouse or by your mother-in-law or society or even the government. But if God forgives you, you're forgiven. You will not be condemned or separated from God's love. But it means you should stay in the light, not the man-made light. But Peter stood up and says, hear these words, Jesus died a death according to God's plan, was raised so that you could live in his light. Hear these words, people in exchange. Know for certain that both Jesus is Lord and Saviour. And for every thought of your sin, take five looks at the Saviour. Repent and believe and walk in the light and you will dispel every shadow. Lord God, we thank you that this gospel is proclaimed through Jesus, through the apostles, through your servants, and we can hear it, we can understand it. Help us to live it, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Joe. Joel, can you hand out communion? And Nate looks like he wants to. (laughs) Okay. Um, Rob, that was great. Um, Now, I didn't talk to Rob beforehand about what he was going to talk about today. I had no clue. So, this is all on God. So, um, I just want to start saying that during communion, I love to be thankful to Jesus, to be all filled at his sacrifice and love for us. And we definitely want to do this. Jesus commands us to remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. And this is easy. It's, it's natural because we've got so much to be thankful for, just what Rob was talking about today. But I've got to say, though, I'm not great at the other part of communion. You know the verses in 1 Corinthians 11, and they, 
include, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not the easy and natural part. This takes effort and makes, makes me uncomfortable. You know, I'm just doing what I'm doing to get by. And I reckon I'm doing okay. I know I'm a sinner every day, but I don't naturally want to consider it in detail. If I do that, I'll have to do something about it. That actually sends it to the hard department of my life. But this is actually what God wants us to do before communion, have a serious look at our heart. Now, I reckon we all know the the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, And there's some following verses immediately afterwards. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I'm noticing that forgiveness is a big thing in God's eyes. And we really like to be forgiven by God. I suspect we also like to be forgiven by others. Or maybe we we like to justify our own behaviours away and think we don't need to be forgiven by others. That's probably worse. What about us forgiving other people? How come that's so much harder? Obviously their reasons aren't as valid as ours. And how many times should I forgive them? I've already forgiven them five times. Surely that's enough. Actually, what did Jesus say? He said 70 times 7. So 490 times. I'm going to have to keep a notebook to keep track of that. But that's the point, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want us to keep count. We just need to keep forgiving. So notice how it's included in the Lord's Prayer. So that, you know, this is, this is the perfect way to pray, isn't it? The Lord's Prayer. You know, God's given, Jesus has given us this, these instructions. So we ask Jesus, we ask God to help us to forgive our debtors. It's not just us doing it on our own bat. We definitely don't do it alone. We do it with God's help. So I just want to take a little bit of time now just to, to maybe just search your hearts for sin and you know, particularly for unforgiveness. So God sees this as as really important. We need to see it that way too. So I'll just have a bit of quiet for a little bit and then I'll just um, pray and we can eat and drink after that. Dear Jesus, 
We are truly thankful that we are forgiven because of your death on the cross. And help us to forgive others as freely and generously as you have forgiven us. Let's eat and drink. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Rob, for sharing with us this morning. Uh, Guys, we're going to wrap it up here, so um, please stay with us for some uh, coffee and cake, and uh, we would love for you to just uh, join with us for fellowship. If you are looking for some prayer, please, I'm happy to be down the front for a few minutes. Come and catch up with me as well, and I'll um, be only too willing to pray with you. Thank you.
children of light.